We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. 8850 is your change. Thank you. And one little tag. Hey, thanks. That was easy enough. That was easy enough. Welcome to Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week's podcast is all about wolves. Let's get right to it with Jason Albert. It's Wednesday morning. We're out in the Lamar Valley. It's pretty windy out. There are more than 100 wolves roaming Yellowstone, but you're not likely to spot them. Wolves are elusive and skittish around humans. The best place to try this is in the wide open Lamar Valley. And the guy who knows the Lamar Valley wolves better than anybody is Rick McIntyre. I don't think I can get something right now, but I can give it a try. So you'll hear a little bit of static. And uh, if we were to get something, it would be a beeping sound. McIntyre studies wolves for the park. On this blustery day, he uses a time-worn receiver to pick up signals from radio-collared wolves. It's easier if they're up high in a ridgetop, but McIntyre thinks they're hunkered down. So right now I'm trying for the local alpha female. That would be 926. All I'm getting is static, so she is out of range. For nearly 70 years, there were no wolves in Yellowstone. There were hardly any gray wolves anywhere outside of Alaska and Canada. In most of the country, they've been hunted nearly to extinction. So in 1978, the government added them to the endangered species list. This meant they'd get federal protection under the Endangered Species Act, the ESA. They couldn't be hunted and the government would try to bring them back. Over time, it's worked. Wolves are starting to recover. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the organization that oversees the endangered species list. And in the past few years, they've started taking the wolf off it. They've done so in five states so far. Now they want to do it throughout the lower 48. Fish and Wildlife's argument is that since wolves are no longer endangered in those five states, the federal government doesn't need to protect them at all. Sure, they may not roam the whole country anymore, but in the areas where they do live, they're doing well. And that's good enough. Interpreting the ESA this way has big implications for all endangered species. It's the government saying, we're not going to try and get things back to the way they once were, decades or centuries ago. Instead, we're just going to do the best we can with the way things are now. Fish and Wildlife say this approach fulfills the requirements of the Endangered Species Act. The law basically says, we want to prevent human actions from causing the extinction of species. This is Dan Rolfe of Lewis and Clark College School of Law. He studies how the law relates to biodiversity, and he says a key part of the legal question here is the idea of range. If you were to look at a map, range would be the area on the map that a wolf population occupies. The Endangered Species Act also includes a legal definition of endangered species as 
a species in danger throughout all or a significant portion of its range. And so that leads to the question of, well, what is a significant portion of the range of a species? Does that mean a significant portion of the historic range or the current range? In the case of wolves, those are two very different things. Historic range is the area on the map that wolves used to occupy. The wolves' historic range is almost the entire U.S. minus the southeast. The current is the area they occupy now. In trying to figure out what significant portion means, let's think about pie. The historic range would be a pie like your grandma might have made. Which is a big, juicy, delicious pie. You know, a significant portion of that pie is a lot of pie. But if you're talking about a little prepackaged tiny pie that you buy in um, the convenience store, that's a very small pie. In July 2014, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service basically said wolves now only live in a small pie, just five states. But they occupy a significant portion of that small pie. The effect of that determination is that we can call species recovered. We can say we've achieved conservation success when species exist into the future, that their future is relatively secure, but their distribution will be only a small portion of their historic distribution. I emailed and called the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to hear what they had to say about this. We even set up an interview, but then a federal judge ruled in a critical case involving gray wolves, which you'll hear about in a little while. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. They canceled the interview and emailed me to say that they'd be able to, quote, re-engage after the dust had settled. This is basically their argument. First, that restoring species costs money, so we need to prioritize. Second, that wolves are no longer high priority because they're recovered in a significant portion of their current, smaller range. There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with this reading. The main criticism you see of that idea is that it's really a museum piece approach to conservation. The ESA was passed because Congress recognized that a complete ecosystem had, quote, aesthetic, ecological, educational, recreational, and scientific value to our nation and its people. The ESA is the law that enshrines those values. Dan Rolf says that means preserving nature as it was, not just trying for an approximation. It's almost like we put these species under glass and say, oh, if you want to see Gunnison's prairie dogs, you go to this little tiny area over here. And if you want to see wolves, well, you go to Yellowstone National Park. And we're really just preserving remnants of species populations as we would preserve artifacts in a museum. This gets into philosophical territory, but there are also practical reasons to avoid the museum approach. John Vucetich is a wolf ecologist at Michigan Tech University, and he says you can find those reasons in the ESA, too. 
the, the finding section of any law is supposed to explain why do we need this law in the first place. And the finding, the finding section of the Endangered Species Act indicates that species have a variety of values, and one of the values is an ecological value. The law doesn't just say that we should protect endangered species. It lays out why. Healthy ecosystems are complex, and we don't always recognize that complexity. For example, without wolves, elk and deer may overgraze. That may cause water temps to increase along streams, disturbing fish habitat, etc. It's a system that we might need years to understand fully. In the meantime, Vucetich says we use our laws to keep that system intact. If a species is valuable for its ecological function, it would have to exist in the places where it's supposed to exist, not just in the fewest number of places possible to prevent it from going extinct. So let's get back to wolves. How we interpret the law has a practical effect on where wolves live and how we live with them. All right, so I would like to purchase a wolf tag, please. Sure. I'm with Nick Brown, who is in Boise purchasing a tag to hunt wolves at the Idaho Fish and Game office. Thank you. Hey, thanks, that was easy enough. We are an hour north of Boise in the Boise Mountains, not exactly the middle of nowhere, but beyond the bustle of the city. It's wolf country. Idaho is one of the five states where wolves are considered recovered. And for 1150, the tag allows them to hunt them legally. Now that wolves are no longer endangered here, hunting is one way the state keeps populations manageable. But this is what we're gonna hunt with. He clips a magazine into a slick-looking and intimidating semi-automatic rifle. And we are good to go. These mountains feel far away from all the legal wrangling, but they're close to the question of how we live in a world that legally tolerates wolves. So, why do you hunt wolves? Well, um, I started hunting wolves... Uh, a couple years back, I've always hunted uh, big game animals, elk and, and deer and things like that, ever since I was a, a young, young kid. Brown sees hunting wolves as a way to increase the populations of the big game he likes to hunt. He's of the school that fewer wolves means more elk and deer, and that's a good thing. Hunting is big time here. That's the core of the conflict. Humans and wolves compete directly for the same prize, and historically, the humans have won. I was probably in third grade when they reintroduced wolves to the state of Idaho, and I remember watching it on the news. Uh, I mean, our entire school went into the cafeteria, and we, we watched them release wolves, and I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world. Uh, cool enough that I went home and, and asked my mom to take me to the public library so I can get books on, on wolves. Brown says there's a stereotype of a wolf-crazy hunter hunting the animals to extinction, but that's not reality. I have no personal vendetta against the wolves. Um, there, there's a yin and yang to everything in life. Idaho and Montana issue thousands of wolf tags each year. Even though wolves can be hard to find, those kills still add up. And they get uncomfortably close to numbers that would mean wolves were endangered again. There are about 1,500 wolves in that region now. For a perspective, scientists consider around 1,000 wolves the minimum viable population. The question of numbers came up in Wyoming last September. That's when a federal judge in D.C. relisted wolves as endangered there. This is the big case I mentioned earlier. I'm Jim McGagna, Executive Vice President of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. McGagna represents Wyoming's ranchers. 
Ranchers are at odds with wolves since they occasionally prey on livestock. Before the ruling, wolves were recognized in most of the state as predators. This gave ranchers the right to shoot at will. A rancher or any citizen is free to uh, take a wolf at any time. Their only obligation is to report to the Wyoming Game and Fish that they have killed a wolf and the approximate location. The state had a system of dividing wolf territory into predator areas and trophy areas. The predator areas were shoot at will, and trophy game areas had annual limits on wolf kills. It was the state's way of trying to follow federal law while allowing ranchers a lot of freedom. But the new ruling has made wolf hunting, under any circumstances, illegal, statewide. This came as a surprise to Magagna. You know, in the, in the Old West, your handshake was your bond. And so the so-called handshake between uh, the state of Wyoming and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, should have been honored uh, by the judge. The specific rules for the trophy area were never part of the law. They were just taken on good faith. But handshakes often don't hold up well in federal court. In her ruling, Judge Amy Berman Jackson refers to the trophy area as the weak link. She writes, The court concludes that it was arbitrary and capricious for the service to rely on the state's non-bonding promises to maintain a particular number of wolves. That is, the handshake wasn't good enough. Still, her ruling didn't change the bottom line. Even though there's a little legal confusion in Wyoming, she agreed with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife that wolves are fundamentally recovered. These facts can seem opposed, that wolves are recovered, but still almost impossible to find. But this is reality for people living with wolves in the West. I spent two days in Yellowstone with my friend Neil Cordes trying to catch a sight of a wolf. He's a cop in a nearby town and has lived there for 13 years, so he knows everyone, including park ranger Molly Moore. How are you? Do you have any uh, hints on where the wolves are? I got your little report the other day. Do you want another one? Sure, what do you got? Okay, so yesterday says um, the Junction Beef Pack. Bears near hitching posts, one in the flats at Slough. Grizzly on a carcass and the junctions were close by. Pups played continuously and occasionally the adults joined in. It looks like that's about the only ones they're talking about. Okay. We head north and east following the Gibbon River to the Yellowstone River and eventually to the Lamar Valley. Along the way, we watch a massive grizzly. We explore abandoned wolf dens and for a time feel just a little bit lower on the food chain. So, uh... We just drove into Neil's ranch over in Wyoming. If you don't have headphones on, even if you do for that matter, listen carefully to what's coming next, because I almost missed this even when I was wearing them. But far away, you can hear a pack of wolves howling. The number of wolves hasn't changed here. It's no easier or harder to find them. But their legal status has, and eventually that legal status will affect the numbers and whether we live with wolves at all. For Life of the Law, I'm Jason Albert.
This episode of Life of the Law was edited by Casey Miner, with sound direction and production by Caitlin Prest. Life of the Law features music by Johnny Ripper, Todd McDonald, Matthew Darr, and Kyle Kaplan. Life of the Law is a project of the Tide Center and is part of the infinite guest network of podcasts from American Public Media. Take a minute to check out some of the other amazing podcasts, such as You Must Remember This and Awesome Etiquette. Just go to infiniteguest.org and hit a play button. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and by you. If you're new to Life of the Law or you've been around to listen to all 44 podcasts, subscribe. It just takes a minute. If you're curious about the law or about our team of producers and editors and writers, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Nancy Mullane. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos. Let's do this. As we like to say. 